it is time to get solar powered. We welcome you, I can't believe I'm about to say this, we welcome you to episode 50 of the Solar Powered Podcast. Wow, I have honestly had no idea this would uh, go the way that it has. My name is Ryan Hall from Royal Hearts Coaching, royalheartscoaching.com, life and relationship coaching for kings. And um, also, if you're listening to this, this show recently passed 1,000 total downloads on all the various platforms, Anchor, Google Play, iTunes, all the good stuff. And I'm truly, uh, you know, truly blessed to be here, truly blessed to be bringing this to you, and truly blessed to be having conversations with really cool people. And we've got one of those cool people on the, uh, on the line right now. And before I introduce her, I just want to ask y'all a question. Have y'all ever heard of a town called Ariton, Alabama? Chances are you haven't, unless you're probably one of the few people who actually who may be listening to this who have, but um, she's a native of Ayrton, Alabama. She is an award-winning writer, poet, playwright. She's a creative writing professor at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. She's got uh, several books out and uh, going to talk a little bit about the author process, talk about the writing process, and just... Uh, how somebody from Ayrton, Alabama can really have the author career that I want, to be honest with you. Let's go now to Muncie, Indiana, and speak to my friend, Angela Jackson-Brown. Angela, welcome so much to the Solar Powered Podcast, my dear. Hello, Ryan. It's so nice to talk to you. So nice to talk to your many listeners, and congratulations on your 50th show, and thank you for allowing me the honor of being a part of it. No. My pleasure. I've been honestly, I've been looking to connect with you um, for a long time. But, but to be able to connect with you here on the podcast is just really, really something I'm, you know, I'm, I'm honestly kind of excited about this conversation. Oh, well, thank you. I'm excited too. No, my pleasure. Well, the first question I always ask of my first time guest is who is Angela Jackson Brown? Oh, that's a good question. I get I, I, I get say, deep first. I get deep first, and then we'll pull. I, I see you're not <laughs> you're not allowing me to tiptoe into this. I have to really go deep. Um, I wrote a poem years back. I I don't remember it, but I do remember the gist of it. And I talked about um, just being a, a a young Southern girl from a small town where uh, the expectations of those outside of my town weren't very great for people like me. But for those that were in our town, Ayrton, Alabama, the expectations were always that we kids would grow up and become someone important. And important didn't mean degrees or, um, you know, publishing books. Important meant being someone who's caring and loving and nurturing of others and supportive. And so when I, my father, M.C. Jackson, first identified my love of writing. It was a seed that he planted, but others in the community helped to grow it. I had amazing teachers uh, at Ayrton High School, um, teachers that saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. So when I left Ayrton High School, it never dawned on me that my dream of becoming a writer was, wasn't gonna happen. I knew it was a matter of time, so I was never that person who was stressed out about writing. I knew if I continued to um, work on the craft and I continued to make 
the connections and networking that I needed to, that eventually the things that I wanted to see happen and that my daddy saw in me years before I was even writing coherent sentences, I knew that it would happen eventually, and, and it did. It sure has. It sure has. It's what we, uh, it's what we in the life coaching circles call declare and fulfill. Speak it into existence and work your butt off to make it happen. Oh my gosh, yes. And, and see, I, I grew up in a, a, a small Baptist church, Manali Baptist church, and that was instilled in us from a very young age. One was, like you said, to speak things into existence. But the other part that a lot of people forget is that you have to work at it. It's not going to come to you easy. I remember when I was getting ready to go away to college and I was one of few in my church and my community, black individuals who had, had that opportunity to go away to college. And I'm sorry, Ryan, but I, I did go to that other university in Alabama that I know you probably don't want me to talk about. But <laughs> Auburn I was university, afraid you were going to bring that up. I, well, I didn't see any way around it. I, and I really was trying to avoid it. But the, but the, the moral the, of the, the story. The, the crimson elephant in the room, so to speak. <laughs> but the moral of the story is not so much what university I went to, but that as I was preparing to go, some of the elders in my community came to me that Sunday before and put a dollar in my hand or $5 or $20 and said, we're proud of you. Now go up there and do, uh, do us right, do us proud. So when I went to college, it wasn't just for myself. It was for my daddy who had to drop out of school in the 10th grade to be a sharecropper. It was for his parents who never had the opportunity to get an education. It was for those old ladies and old men in my church who didn't have a lot of money, but was willing to invest what they had in me because they knew if I succeeded, it meant success for all of us. So, you know, I think that's another reason why I've never been cutthroat when it comes to publishing. I know people who um, won't help other people because they feel like if they help someone else, it's going to diminish their ability to succeed. And I've always been taught this notion of, you know, if you get up the ladder, you stop and you put your hand down and help pull someone up with you. And so I think that's really the reason why I've had the success that I've had is because people have reached their hands out to help me. And I've likewise tried to reach my hands out to help others. It's the whole system of just what you put out in the university universe is what comes back to us every single time. I believe. Indeed, indeed. it's the old, uh, it's the old um, golden rule: do unto others as they'd have them, as you'd have them do unto you. Exactly, and I I graduated from a program, the Spalding University uh, MFA in Creative Writing program, and our leader at the time, she's still our leader. She's just retired, Sina uh, Jeter Naslin always made it clear to all of us who were students there that our competition, our competition, it was not the people sitting in that room. It was the people that were on the bookshelves. So as a result, you always support the people that, was, that were sitting in that room. So our workshops were never what I've heard other universities were like, where people were um, you know, backstabbing each other or they were trying to make someone else's work feel as if it was less than. Our support system in that, at that program was one that, you know, here I am 
over 10 years after graduating and I'm still close to most of the people I went to school with. And when one of us succeeds, we celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You, because when you're, I mean, I would say when you're competing against other people, but I would say that, I mean, there, I mean, if you walk into a Barnes and Noble or, you know, a little mom and pop bookstore, there are tons of names on the shelves of people you may have heard of, you may not have heard of, but keeping one of those, you know, keeping other people down from joining the, you know, from joining those names on the shelves is not going to help you get your name on that shelf. And even if you do get your name on that shelf, it may, it, it may feel hollow. It may feel like a, almost like a Pyrrhic victory in a way. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you've got to, this, this business is, it's, it can be cutthroat. Um, it can be um, all about me, me, me. But I think as an individual, as a writer, we have to have, first of all, have confidence in your work. I, I've never been so insecure about my work that I would be afraid for someone else to uh, be on the same shelf with me, so to speak. I, I remember when I was first searching for an agent, I reached out to someone um, who was known in the industry and had a successful career. And I reached out to this person and said, I'm not asking you to give me a recommendation, but I just wondered, you know, if you could tell me something about your agent, do you think maybe that would be someone I should reach out to? And the person said back to me, I don't have time to uh, help people get an agent. And I definitely wouldn't help them to get my agent. I need all of the time that my agent has to give to me. And I thought to myself, wow, as, as, as bright as you are, as great of a writer you are, that's the way you are approaching life. And I learned from that moment that that was never going to be the writer that I wanted to be. So I am on a mission. You know, when someone says to me, I'm looking for an agent, if, if I feel like that person is a good fit with my agent, um, Alice Spielberg, the Spielberg agency. I'm the first to say you should you should query my agent. And this is here's some things that you should think about when you do the query process. I, I believe that my agent knows enough to not overextend herself and have more clients than she can support. But I also know that I'm going to work hard so that she's want, will want to put the time and energy into me as well as this other possible person so yeah i i'm i've never won i may i maybe i won't become the most famous author ever by my approach but i will be at the end of my life be able to close my eyes and feel good that i did no harm amen amen to that well i certainly want to talk about the about the i like to call it the author process finding agents finding publishers i certainly want to talk about that but how did you get into writing how did you find that you were that words and story and really yeah really that was the way that you wanted to share your voice with the world well there's two parts to my story the first part uh has to do with um nature and when i talk about that it's in terms of my 
I'm adopted. And my birth family is made up of people who are writers or enjoy writing. I didn't learn that until I was in my 30s. But upon finding my birth family, I also found just a body of poetry that my maternal grandmother had written. And it validated in me something that I never had validated before, which is that you can grow up miles and miles away from the people who you have a blood connection to and still inherit some of their traits. So I have an aunt who's written a children's book. I have several cousins who write. So it's it. So that was just a part of who I was. It was in my DNA. But I think what really brought that out in me, as I mentioned before, was my father. I would sit as a, a little girl before I even had an opportunity to have um, educational training. But I would sit and have a little notebook, something like the one in my hand now that I keep close by, and I would just scribble. It, 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 I didn't know letters, but I knew that those squiggly things in books meant something because daddy would read to me all of the time. So I was trying to mimic what I saw in those books. And so then he would come home from work and he'd ask me, what'd you do today? And here I am, a you know, four-year-old saying, I wrote a story. And he'd say, well, read it to me. Now, of course, there were no words here, but I had a vivid imagination. So I would read my books to him or my little stories or my little poems. And I don't care what um, level of excellence they were in the minds of that man. I was as prolific as any Langston Hughes or any Maya Angelou. He celebrated every little squiggle on my, on my page and said to me constantly throughout my childhood, into my teen years, into my twenties, you are going to be a writer someday. And he planted that seed. And as I mentioned before, I had so many amazing uh, teachers who continued to reinforce that message. Uh, my Mrs. Kennedy, my third grade teacher, was the first teacher to introduce me to books by Black writers. All of the books I had at home were by, by white writers which was a good foundation for me because my dad gave me really good books based on what he would go to the library and say, what books should I get from my little girl? Because he didn't know. And all of the books they recommended were books with white writers, with white characters. But when I read uh, in the third grade, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. In the third and, yeah, grade, I wow, okay. In the third grade. And I, and I, was, I had read all of the books that were in our third grade section. And so when I told Miss Kennedy that, she said, this book is gonna be difficult. There's gonna be a lot of big words that you might not understand, but I think you can, you can handle it. And if you have questions, you can ask me. And so I turned the book over and saw Maya Angelou's picture. And I said, Miss Kennedy, who is this woman? And she said, that's the person who wrote the book. And at that point, what my daddy had said and what I was seeing on this book cover communicated to me, oh, so you can be a writer too. So it legitimized everything my daddy had ever said. And so when I said to her, I didn't know Black people wrote books. She said, baby, Black people can do anything. So from there, it was a continuous process of the teachers in my life. Uh, Miss Dorothy 
Dolosky who said things like, you know, teaching me Latin and teaching me about Shakespeare and first introducing me to Othello. Again, I'd never read, I'd read everything by Shakespeare by the eighth and ninth grade. I'd never read Othello. I'd never heard of it. And now you're telling me there's, there's been books and plays and stories written that long ago about people that may have looked something like me. So I just had continuous validation throughout my life that being a writer was not only something that I could do, that it was something that I was destined to do. Well, well that, I mean, that's, that's an incredibly powerful testimony on several different levels. But the thing that I'm hearing the most about this is that, is that, you know, especially what you shared about Maya Angelou is that it's just, it like, it gave you validation that yes, you can be a writer, you can be an author, even though you're black, even though you grew up in the South, there's a, there's, I mean, anybody can, you know, anybody can do anything if your heart is, a, you know, it, if that is what your heart and what your nature is. And that's just an incredibly powerful testimony to anybody with big goals and big dreams and big aspirations in the world that circumstances are going to, are, are going to get in your way. But how committed are you to seeing those goals and seeing those dreams come true? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a very careful person when we, we, when talking about how people are able to succeed because we're all different. And, 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 and I don't want anyone to ever feel like um, I'm dismissing the struggle because the struggle, whatever it happens to be for individual people is real and how they cope with it is dependent on so many things. I had aspirations of being a writer, but if I had not had a dad like I had, if I had not had teachers like I had, so many other components, that led me to these to this goal, I very easily could not could have just given up at any given point. And there were periods of time in my life where I did, where I just said, this is too much. I can't do, I can't be a mom the way I need to be a mom and be a writer. Or I couldn't be a wife the way that I needed to be a wife and be a writer. And when you don't have a support system in your home, so like when I, when I got married and I entered into a relationship that was not healthy for me or for the person that I married, I put aside my writing goals for, for at least a decade. You know, I would scribble something every now and then, but the desire and the drive that I had when I was uh, a small child or a teenager, it just left me. And then um, something that I'm very open about, I, my the mental illness that I had really been struggling with probably since my teen years, it just really got worse in my 20s. And for a long period of time, the only thing that I could, I could even contemplate doing was just keeping my head above water and not allowing myself or my son to drown. Um, and then, so, but, but then, you know, the, the, the light bulb moment happened uh, and I, I left that that bad marriage and I recommitted myself to becoming the type of person that my son deserved, which meant I had to put myself first sometimes. And that included the writing. 
And I went as far as I could on my own. And then I went back to school and just sort of baby stepped myself to the point where in my 40s, I decided I'm ready. I mean, I, I, I had such a huge body of, of written work, but I was too afraid to send it out because I was afraid I was going to hear that voice saying, you aren't as good as you think you are. I'd lost that, that my dad had died. So I'd lost that, that Jiminy Cricket on my shoulder who kept saying, you can do this. You're, you're smart. You're all these things. I'd lost that. So I had to be my own cheerleader uh, and say to myself, I, you, you're, you, you're where you need to be. So trust yourself. And, and then I did the homework to find the agents or the agent and the editors who would accept my work. Wow. Um, you know, again, there's, I guess what I'd like to add to that is there's like anybody can, you know, anybody can write, but to, but to really find that greatness, to really find that, you know, really find that center, really find that, that truth that all great authors have takes a lot of self-discovery. And I, and I have it that that's, that that's what you did. Um, you know, especially, you know, as you got a little older, you know, as well as I did, because fine, because I knew that I wanted to write, but I'm, you know, I'm with you. I, you know, I put a lot of those goals aside because my confidence was just in the toilet, <laughs> was absolutely in the toilet. But finding myself getting into coaching, getting into therapy, really starting to heal some of the, you know, some of the stuff that went on in my life and in some of the, you know, in some of the stuff that my, in my life, which I've been open about on this podcast, that, you know, that allowed me to find that truth and to be able to dig a little deeper into my own work. And I, you know, that's definitely the most powerful part of that, you know, of your story there. And um, certainly, um, you know, certainly commend you for that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, persistence is the key to this, um, to, to this publishing life. Obviously, talent is important. It is. I'm not taking away from it. But there are a lot of talented writers who never see their work published because the amount of energy that it takes to stay committed to the process. Um, when, you know, you think of, of every other industry, there's very few of them that requires the person to every single day, if you're doing the work, to receive rejections rejection after rejection after rejection sometimes the re most times the rejection doesn't even come with an explanation so you don't even have a clue why you're being rejected so you're internalizing that and because so many of us as writers are empaths we, we feel emotions in such a strong way you know I, I i can walk into a room and i can feel the energy in the room whether it's positive or negative and if that's the type of person you are, you, you, you just embody all of the negativity that can come from being told, no, 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 no. It's easy to just say at some point, I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. I'm not going to continue to, to put myself out there to be told, 
um, either overtly or covertly that my work is not good enough. Um, so it really does require a, a level of perseverance that that everyone just does not have. Right. And there's no shade to them because gosh knows, there, there were times when I just said, uh-uh, I can't do this anymore. Being told no all of the time, you know, and there would be the random few yeses to certain stories or poems uh, at first, but but you really have to go through that long phase of being told no before you get into that phase where the yeses start happening. Um, and and it, the, the question is, are, do you have the strength to weather the storm to get to the yeses? Amen. Amen. You know, just to, you know, personal reflection here, one of the, one of the most powerful experiences for me and my own, it, sorry, apologize for my co-host there, but um, one of the most powerful experiences for me in my own development as an author was an event that I did uh, a couple summers ago in New York City called the Writers Hotel, which is which was a just a really intense week of workshop and you know I got a chance to read from my work in progress at this really charming little club in the East Village and I got to meet a bunch of agents and got rejected by most of them but it was a really it was a powerful experience for me to be able to to be able to know just how you know, just to be able to know that, yes, my skills are good enough to belong here. My skills are good enough to thrive here. And I, you know, it was a really big boost for my confidence. I mean, there was some really, some of the workshop leaders were really powerful. Like um, one of the workshop leaders uh, was the author named Sapphire, who did the uh, the book Precious, uh, that the movie was, uh, yeah, yeah, that the movie was based off of. So it was a, you know, a really, you know, really excellent experience for me just to that, um, that validation that, yeah, I've got the skills, I've got the game to be able to bring it here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I share with my, my students every semester, my creative writing students, a story about Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss was rejected 20 by 27 publishers and was had after the 27th, he was like, I'm done. And was on his way back home to burn his manuscript when he ran into a childhood friend, just out of the blue. And the guy happened to ask, you know, what are you doing these days? And Dr. Seuss happens to say, I'm, 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 I was trying to be a writer, but I'm giving up on it. The guy was a publisher. And so he says, let me see your manuscript. And the rest is history. And so I, I say that to them to say, you just never know when your moment is going to happen. And so if, if, if Dr. Seuss can be, um, you know, rejected 27 by 27 publishers, and I think another favorite writer of mine, Louisa May Alcott, her, her novel, Little Women, uh, one, uh, one publisher wrote her and said, don't quit your day job basically as a teacher, you're no writer. Um, that you that you just have to believe you have to believe in your work so strongly that for every no you get you say to yourself that just wasn't the right publisher for my work but my but the right publisher is out there or the right agent is out there I just have to find them 
it, it only takes one. Absolutely. It only takes Absolutely. it only takes one person to be able to vibe with you, to be able to to be able to see something in you and like, yeah, I can work with this. Yeah, because if you have someone who the, the the beauty of having an agent is that I don't have to do all of the fighting by myself anymore. That I can just focus on writing and she'll focus on the rest. She'll get my book to the person or to the people that it needs to get to. And after that, if it if we don't find a home for that particular work, we move on to the next one. Indeed, indeed. And she's found a pretty nice little home for your uh, for your soon to be novel, soon to be released novel. Um here coming out in the spring. Uh, you know, HarperCollins is a pretty decent sized name in the publishing industry. Absolutely. And I'm with their imprint, Thomas Nelson. But we we are under the HarperCollins umbrella, so it does give us resources that I didn't have with my first novel. Mm -hmm. So it's very much like night and day. Um, I still have to pinch myself because I was so used to having to do everything. And now I'm having to learn to relinquish some of my control. Amen. Amen. Well, talk, about, talk a little about your novels here and um, really how you got started with that. Um, yeah, what was your first one? Um, my first novel was uh, a book called Drinking from a Bitter Cup. And that book was, a, it was a very personal book because a lot of the things that happened to young Sylvia in that, that novel were things that had happened to me in a roundabout way. Um, some very specific, but others were just more uh, me hinting at it. And I say, if, if I ever come close to telling my story completely, it was probably in that novel because it really was a way for me to release some of the, the childhood pain I'd experienced that was similar um, to Sylvia. In, in the novel, unlike me, Sylvia's mother commits suicide. We find that out on page, page one. And what we see afterwards is the aftermath of how Sylvia, as a young child, um, has to go to Ozark, Alabama and live with her father she never knew and a stepmother who never knew about her until around the same time uh, uh, Sylvia's father learns about her. And so we get to see what, what this young girl experiences living in a house where one parent loves her and the other doesn't, where she has to deal with abuse uh, from another family member and how she, um, how she turns her life around. And what that book did for me is it gave me the ability to change my story through Sylvia that the way Sylvia reacted to her situation was the way that I wished I could have reacted in my situation. So for me, writing has also been a way of healing. The first stories I wrote about were about a birth mother that I did not know and my desire for her to come find me. Um, I love my daddy. Um, he was the best daddy ever, but I craved a mom that really loved me. Uh, and I didn't have that through my adopted mother. And so, uh, I think a lot of what I've done in my writing is to try to exercise the demons <laughs> that were still living inside my head. Yeah, I, yeah, that, that was my, my first two novels written in the stone and um, hello again, which I'm, you know, trying to find a publisher for were to were to support me in healing from losing my mom with written mm -hmm. in the stone and 
um, from losing my dad in Hello Again. It was like helping me to rewrite how I would have reacted, how I would have changed the story of how they went out and also changing their stories as well. So I totally get that on a deep, deep level, just how healing and, and how cathartic um, that can really be. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, I, I do understand that there are people that write for the business end of it. Like I, I, I've been in a couple of writing groups that I've gotten out of because I knew my goals and mission were very different from the people in it. And they were very calculated about the process, you know, what they would write about, when they would write it, writing to what the industry was looking for, you know, writing with a particular agent in mind, you know, very much a calculated approach. And for me, my, my writing has always been personal. Uh, it's, I write about the communities that I'm familiar with. I write about the kind of people that I grew up around that inspired me. You know, I write about, you know, there's some version of my daddy in almost everything I write. There's some version of the older ladies in the community who showed me motherly love when I didn't get it in other areas. So uh, writing for me has been always been less about what the market is looking for and more about what do I need to write about at that particular time to heal myself and hopefully heal others. Got it. Got it. Yeah. As you were sharing that, I what came to mind was the the difference between having your book sold at Walmart and having your book sold at little mom and pop bookstores. But those little mom and pop bookstores, those are the ones that go on and leave the long lasting legacy. Those are the ones that win the Pulitzers and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, wherever my book gets sold, that's great. Of course. Like you, um, the thing that brought me the greatest joy was when my first book came out and I went back home to do a reading uh, at my local high school and the librarian uh, in the high school and the librarian in the little community library where I'd gone to as a child um, prominently displayed my book. And it was the best feeling ever. I mean, there's nothing anyone could have told me to make me feel better than I did that moment to be validated by the place and the people that got me started. So um, again, I think my goals and aspirations are very different. Uh, obviously, it would be great to be able to write and, and not have to work and do other things, um, but I, I would never want to sacrifice the the message in my books just to appease a certain community of readers. You know, um, I, I've been told not by my current agent, but by other individuals in the industry, well, if you would just write about this, or if you would just write about that, or if you wouldn't write so many rural characters, if you'd write more, um, you know, city uh, individuals, individuals living in great cities, more urban books, then you might have better success. But you know, at the end of the day, we all have to be true to what, what we feel strongly about. And for me, it's elevating the stories of the people where I come from. Amen. Amen to thine own self be true, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Um, and talk a little about house repairs. 
House Repairs, are, that's a collection of poems that I wrote through the years. <clears throat> I'm the kind of poet who writes based on feeling strongly about something. So I don't have a large body of poems, but I, I put together this collection of poems that I started in probably in the first one would have been in my late teens, so 18, 19, culminating to um, a poem that I wrote um, after uh, the, the choking death of, of Eric Garner. Um, and so most of these poems are in response to some of the personal traumas, as well as the societal traumas that I've witnessed uh, over time. And, and a friend of mine, Rob Gray, who uh, has written several books of poetry himself, he said you should send your work to Negative Capability Press. It's a, it's a publishing house um, in, in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and so I did. And uh, Sue, Sue Walker there decided to, to publish the, the collection. So it's, it's a lot of my own personal story, but it's also my reaction, as I said, to things going on around me. Got it, got it. Now, I know you've mentioned um, just how, like how powerful the support has been from your agent, Alice. Um, talk a little bit about how you guys got connected. The first time I met Alice, to my recollection, we were both at a at a literary event. I think it may have been the Kentucky um, Book Festival or something like that. My my first book had just come out, and I I saw on the 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 program that she was going to be doing a presentation. I had heard of Alice from some of my other um, Louisville, Kentucky friends. And so I decided I would just go check her out and see, you know, if I felt any type of energy. I'm, I, I seek energy when I'm meeting people. Do I feel a good energy from you? And so I know the I feeling did, well, I, by the way. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I have been in the presence of some literary agents and I immediately knew that their energy and my energy would not mesh with each other. So I, I never even pursued those, but I walked into the space and Alice, she was giving her, her talk about what she looks for as an agent, how she operates as an agent. And I just, I knew immediately that I wanted to work with her. I didn't have a manuscript ready at the time. So I just asked questions, took notes, and then filed it away so that I knew when I got ready to start looking for an agent, I was going to, to seek her out. Um, a few years went by and I had a book and I, I've started querying a few other agents along with Alice. Um, the, the advice that I always give people is do your homework. Don't just send out letters to, to agents because, you know, people recommend them or because you know someone has that person as an agent, really do the legwork to see, do they already, do they represent work that's similar to yours? Or do you see a way that your work can fit in with what they're already doing? It really needs to be a, 
a process uh, on behalf of the writer. And then you need to write a query letter that's going to catch their attention because they're getting hundreds of submissions, some of them every single day or every week. You've got to do the work to make sure that your submission stands out above everyone else's. So I sent out letters. I didn't send a letter to Alice because around the same time that I was doing those query letters to other agents, I saw that she was going to be taking face-to-face um, -face pitches from, from potential authors. You had like 10 or 15 minutes to pitch your book to her. And I signed up for it. I went to it. And again, I felt good energy. She and I just talked. We laughed. Um, she said, I'd like to see the full manuscript. Um, I emailed it to her right there on the spot. And then I thought, okay, it'll be a couple few weeks, maybe longer before I hear from her. I got back to my hotel and by about, I saw her at 11 in the morning, by about three that afternoon, I got a call from her and she said, I want to represent you. And uh, <laughs> I was like, this is crazy. This is not how this is supposed to happen. And I really, you know, for a moment, I thought, you know, maybe I'm dreaming and this isn't real. Am I being pumped? Um, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking this is not how I've heard people say this happens. But I think a lot of things worked in my favor. One was that she and I, at that point, already knew of each other. We weren't besties or anything, but we knew of each other. She knew me by name. I knew her by name. Um, I was very, I, even though, I, you know, I sent her the query letter still, even though I met with her face to face. And I acknowledged having read books by people that she represented. So there's another, you know, feather in my cap. She saw that I wasn't just looking for something from her. I'd actually done the research to make sure that I would fit in with the people she already represented. And it's always a good thing to be able to show an agent. I read some of the books by the authors that you represented. Um, that's, that's, I mean, to me, that was elementary. Of course you would. Why would you want someone to represent you and you don't know anything about who they already represent? Right. You know, if I read and saw that, you know, a potential agent only had only represented science fiction books, then of course I wouldn't send my, my book to them. So, you know, just doing the, the homework and I think helped and being able to be there in person to pitch my book helped because she could ask questions that she wouldn't have been able to ask if I had just sent her something by snail mail or, or by the, you know, by email. But just something out of the blue. Right. Cause you already had that connection with her already had that, uh, that camaraderie and yeah. 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 So I tell writers, if you can afford it, and even if you can't afford it, try to set aside some money to, to go and see these agents face to face because if you are a personable individual, it's going to increase your chances of getting a, a yes, or at the very least, it'll increase your chances of them saying, send me a partial or send me a full manuscript. That's, I can speak to that on a very personal level on that, uh, on my uh, experience with the Writer's Hotel. Well, speaking of that, before we run out of time, we got to talk about your book that's coming out here in uh, here in uh, the spring of 2021. Talk about when stars rain down. 
Stars Rain Down is a book that is set in a fictional town called Parsons, Georgia. It follows um, a group of, 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 of Black people who live in um, Color Town, which is like a little bit of an offshoot of Parsons and about some of the white individuals who live in this town. Uh, the main character of the story is Opal Pruitt. Opal is turning 18. Um, and it's the summer of the worst drought that actually ever hit the country. So that's a bit of real information included in the novel. Uh, but it particularly hits Parsons, Georgia, and Color Town hard. And so Opal, who works as a housekeeper, she and her grandmother, Birdie, are, you know, trying to get through this highly um, unusual time as far as the weather's concerned, but also highly uh, emotional time towards just how the black and white people in this community are reacting to each other. As we know, when things are hot, ten tends to make people react in a way that's out of the ordinary. So Clan is riding this summer, and we have to see how Birdie and her family and some of the other white members of this community deal with um, this very real threat. And it's not just a threat to the black members of the community, it's a threat to the entire community. And we get to see how they rise to the occasion or not. Oh, sounds like a really powerful story and you're already taking, uh, already taking uh, pre-orders on it. Oh yeah, um, people are welcome to go to my website, www.angelajacksonbrown.com. And um, there's different options, the amazon.com way, or if you want to support, which I highly encourage people to support their local bookstores, there's a way that you can support your local bookstores and order a copy of the book through them. Right. And we'll, of course, include information uh, about how to get your books and how to connect with you on the show notes um, uh, below. So, um, Angela, and we're just about out of time here. I think my final question is what you know, what, I guess, overarching advice would you give to somebody who, who may be listening to this, who has a story and who has a story that they want to share, who has something that they want to tell, but may not know how and may think, okay, I'm not a writer. What would you tell those people to, you know, to let them know, yeah, you are a writer? Yeah. Um, well, there's two parts to it. One of them has to do with just the tech, technical aspects of writing. Um, if, you, if you want to be a writer, you need to read. Um, and you don't need to just read. You need to, to really study what you're reading to try to understand why the authors made the choices that they made. You have to understand writing isn't just about emotion, putting your, your emotions on the page. There is a, a strategy to creating a scene or creating a, a, a narrative that flows in such a way that a reader is willing to suspend their disbelief and accept that your fictional world is the real world. So there's that part of it. Do your work, you know, read all of the time. If I could teach a creative writing class for introductory writers, what I would do is not have them write at all for the entire semester maybe one or two days at the end, but we really do need to study our craft more. So that's one part of it. 
Um, the other part is to network and find opportunities to um, interact with other writers, particularly those that are successful at it. Um, I budgeted every year. I, I stopped using my I stopped using my money for snacks and buying frivolous things and making sure I had enough money to go to writers' conferences. You've got to be in the room with the people that are doing what you want to do because that's how you make the, the necessary connections to make that leap. And then the last thing is don't give up. If you want to be a writer and this is what you think you were meant to do, don't allow anything to stop you from doing it. And at the end of the day, what are you writing for? Are you writing for fame and fortune? Or are you writing because writing is what you know to do and it's the only thing that sustains you? And I always knew if no one ever published a single book by me or a single or another poem or short story, that that was not going to stop me from writing. Because I didn't need a publishing house in New York to tell me I was a writer. My daddy did that a long time ago. I just needed them to help my writing to, to reach a wider range of readers. So really separate the writing from the publishing because they're two separate things. And that'll preach eight days a week, my friend. Angela, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Once, uh, once uh, when stars rain down comes out, we'd love to have you back and we'd love to hear a little bit from it. Absolutely. I would love to do that, Ryan. And thank you for this conversation. Oh, my pleasure, Angela. Thank you so much for joining us. And that'll just about do it here for this episode of the Solar Powered Podcast, a presentation of Royal Hearts Coaching. For more information about me and about Royal Hearts Coaching, you can find me at royalheartscoaching.com. Um, you can connect with me on social media at Ryan Hall Writes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at Ryan at RoyalHeartsCoaching.com. But until we meet again, we really thank you for listening to the Solar Powered Podcast. Until we meet again, this is Ryan Hall saying so long for now. I love you so much and go get solar powered. But right after you wash your hands and put on a mask before you leave the house, come on.